I'm Esther Alma. Welcome. You're listening to The Spin. It is that time for an hour where smart is sexy. The Spin, our weekly all-women of color media panel. I'm coming to you live from Star FM Studios in Accra, Ghana. Our contributors are on the line via NPR Washington, D.C., We are on air nationally across the United States and internationally in Ghana and Nigeria. This program is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. Today on The Spin, we launch The Consent Convo, a public, loving, unlearning and reframing conversation on consent. Throughout the month of October, The Spin explores, interrogates, reframes and reimagines consent with women and men. We talk the personal, the political, the societal, and the cultural. We ask, what did we learn about consent? What do we need to unlearn? And how do we reframe consent? The Consent Convo is brought to you by The Spin and Emotional Justice in partnership with Ebony.com. Check out Ebony.com every Thursday. It will post each show plus a piece on the Convo contributors. Consent, unlearning, reframing, reimagining, all of that. Coming up. Our contributors for this launch conversation are Asha Bendele and Joan Morgan. Asha Bendele is an award-winning journalist, an author, editor, and activist. Asha is Director of Communications for National Cares and Director of the Advocacy Grants Program for Drug Policy Alliance. Joan Morgan is a veteran cultural critic, author of the critically acclaimed When Chicken Heads Come Home to Roost, My Life as a Hip Hop Feminist, and creator of the Body Butter and Beauty line, Emily Jane. Welcome, welcome, ladies. Wonderful Hello. to be here. Time for part one. Your consent, your yes, your no. What does that mean? Nope. Yep. Nope. Yep. How did you learn about consent? Who taught you? How did their teaching shape your relationship to your body, sex, power, men and women? How did family and culture and media influence that teaching for you? Sex education in school has focused on the anatomical, on the anatomy, and it's been about a politics of fear, shame and guilt, especially for girls. What about the emotional? What about the idea of permission and what that means? If you actually look up the word consent, you'll see terms like agree to, allow, accept, sanction, give permission for. What does that mean for us individually? What do you know now as women and mothers that you might tell your 14 or 17 or 19 year old self? So let's start by centralizing women of color and talking the personal, cultural and familial notions of consent and how they shape the ways we learn and love and walk through our worlds and engage ourselves and each other. Asha Bandele, let me start with you, your thoughts. I realize as I think back to little Asha, I don't know that I ever heard the word consent used. I was certainly taught by my mother or told by my mother, right, to value my body. But my mother was but one voice within a cacophony of so many other voices that were telling me that I didn't have value. I should say that I came of age before 
Oprah Winfrey before even talking about sexual abuse was something people did in public deities, right? So now we're very used to it, and I've raised my daughter quite differently. But when I was coming up, there was no discussion of consent on a, on a broad public dais. I'm not saying people weren't talking about it, but it didn't filter down to those of us just sort of traversing the worlds. And many of the worlds that I traversed, I was the only black girl. And so what I learned was that I wanted to be accepted and I wanted to be seen as not other. Then in many cases, I did feel like that and that I wanted to be seen as beautiful. I was never seen in that way either. And so... I think I lived with a lot of guilt for a long time because I felt like I gave consent as a way to not be outsider and not be othered. But it wasn't really consent because I was so young. You know, I'll say this and then I'd love to hear from Joan. You know, I started high school at 12 and graduated at 15. So everybody was always so much older than me. I was always the baby. And so there was a lot of emotional manipulation, a lot of things I wasn't emotionally prepared for. And so anybody who even looked like they were bringing something that at all resembled love, which I mistook attention for love, I think that unknowingly I I provided what I thought was consent that I now know was manipulation. That scarred me for a very long time. Joan Morgan, your thoughts? My gosh, it was very interesting to see those questions posed because I don't think I've ever really thought about it actually before. In terms of, I have a very political and feminist stance on consent, obviously, but I, I never really thought about it in terms of my own life and, and when it entered. Um You know, I grew up a first-generation immigrant in a working-class neighborhood, in a very violent working-class neighborhood, the South Bronx in the 70s. And so any kind of instructions, I think, about sex prior to me going to high school in the 80s was simply just don't get pregnant. And so preferably don't have sex, and if you do, don't get pregnant. So it was not about, like, negotiating the relationships or negotiations of my body. And it was really like protect your body and your reproduction in a particular kind of way because pregnancy means that your life is coming to an end, uh, teen pregnancy. And so I then left and I was still living in the South Bronx, but I went to a very elite, very wealthy, predominantly white private school in New York. And I don't remember conversations there about consent, but I do remember the culture around sex changing in a different kind of way. So, you know, we were, in terms of the institution, it wasn't like a class that we took, but the the basic overall thing I remember about sex was that people were having it, usually towards junior and senior year, and that there was a very informed network of where to go. There was a great place in New York called The Door, which was a youth organization that did many things, like the arts and counseling, and they also provided gynecological services. And I remember, like, going with my best friend and my boyfriend for my exams and for birth control and for counseling. And when I think it's 17, like, I had a very strong sense of taking responsibility for my body in in a particular kind of way. And I also had a partner that was very, um, my first partner was very supportive of that. And so I went off to college with a very strong sense of ownership of my body. And I think consent, 
then started to come into the conversation because this is like the mid to late 80s. So we're also starting to see the emergence of feminist take back the night campaigns and anti-rape campaigns and consciousness raising about rape. And so I think that's when I started to understand consent, although I don't necessarily remember it being phrased as consent. It's all very blurry. But I do remember a switch from feeling as if like my body could betray me through pregnancy and it was this thing that boys did to girls and it could happen to you and it would ruin your life to the switch to having in a very not just empowered stance but actual institutions and friendships and relationships that supported this notion that I own my body to moving then to like and I have the right to demand consent. And I have to tell you, I think that the difference there is definitely about not even race, although I'm sure that has something to do with it, but class. Like the difference between those and two environments socioeconomically were night and day. Mm. This is so interesting to me. So I was born in London and then as a very, very young girl was in Accra, Ghana for a period of time and then back in London where I was raised. And so... It's interesting to hear the conversation specifically around class because I was a young black girl in London where I belonged to a particular class because I had a, a parent who was a minister in a government. But because of a military coup, we'd all been thrown out of the country. And so I called it kind of a faux class. So we were acting like we were middle class, but actually we'd been thrown out of a country and did not have much. But we appeared, we still held this particular reverence in terms of our community and in terms of who my father was, God rest his soul. And so I came, I lived in an area that was predominantly Irish and then secondly immigrant. So it was white Irish and then immigrant. And if in London, historically, it was kind of the Irish, the blacks and the immigrants. There was a way in which the Irish were put alongside black people when it came to issues of discrimination. I went to, my father really wanted us all to go to private school, but we, I didn't, and my elder sister didn't, my younger sister didn't. I went to public school. So I remember going into public school and then meeting, particularly in London, where we have a big Caribbean population, Trinidadian, Jamaican, Barbadian, particularly Jamaican, and coming up against very specifically the notion of good girls and bad girls. Like it was a really specific thing. And the only thing I understood was that I better stay a good girl. I don't even know that I fully understood what that meant, but there was a way in which we were broken down into good and bad girls. And I really remember, I think at around 15, I had a best friend who was Jamaican, who I thought was just the best thing since sliced bread. And she came to school and she got pregnant. And what I remember was... The horror, the shame, that, and the concern that because we were friends, it was al almost as if pregnancy was contagious because she was pregnant that I would become pregnant as well. And I remember the way in which there was a kind of a trashing of the friendship on my, for me because the idea of being friends with her would somehow impact detrimentally my future. And then there was the breakdown was around class. She had working class Jamaican parents and I was West African and lived in this particular neighborhood that was white Irish and had nice houses. And so I really remember that. And the idea that 
she might need counselling or help or even a conversation about how any of this happened was simply not part of the equation. It was a very specific shaming that went on. And also it was almost like I needed to be rescued from this space because nothing good could come from having this kind of friendship. And so that politics of shame was really powerful for me and became personal. And so um, and it was not I don't know if that it was about being a good girl quote unquote, as much as it was about appearing to be that. And then we had a, in secondary school, what you call high school, we call secondary school. There was the girls school was separate to the boys school, but we were next door to each other. And so there was also a way in which girls were very specifically categorized. And that also broke down into notions of these words, fast, loose, available. And it's so interesting to me because the idea of availability, which is about being able to consent, was tagged with something undesirable, unsavory and something you shouldn't want. And so no one ever in my young life ever spoke to me about consent. And I stumbled into having a active sexual life completely in the dark and was grateful for having partners that helped. But I, I like Usher, I don't know if there are times that I would have consented if I better understood what consent meant and what ownership of my body went. And that's where I think... We have we can often have very strong politics around consent, but how that translates into the personal and the emotional is is a particular challenge. And even part of having this conversation is saying, how do you break it down and think about a, a practice, a praxis, as opposed to just a, a, a politic? With the issue of consent and giving consent or not giving consent and the issue of sexual coercion and persuasion. And I think it's an important distinction because there's a way with consent that I feel like we have to draw a very hard line as in we have to encourage and demand that we have to demand that certainly our partners, for those of us who are cisgender, so our male partners understand that no means no and that uh, for women we then have to encourage the young women who are coming after us to be able to responsibly and firmly articulate what their desires are and what their desires aren't. And frankly, I feel like that point right there gets lost way too often and conflated into the consent conversation. To be able to articulate not wanting to have sex or what you like or what your pleasure is, is a long, difficult process for women, particularly for younger women. And there's very little place, very few places to get support for that. Because we make that so difficult, when we then find ourselves in situations where the sex feels coercive. I don't really want to, but he's pressuring me. I really want him to still like me. I don't want to lose him. That is an issue of coercion. I feel strongly that we don't conflate that with, with consent because if he is coercive and you don't want to, but you are still saying yes and going along with it, he thinks that he has your consent. 
I think that's right, Joan. You know, the situation very right. Thank you for making that distinction. Although I do think that, and I'm, you know, reflecting on my own life and then thinking about some of the, the girls that I've seen around me, sometimes where that coercion came in came at the hands of sometimes men who were much older. Absolutely. And so, you know, so I think that there's also that dynamic, and I don't want to rid this discussion. I've been doing work with young teenagers, you know, who were pregnant, and prob- part of the problem of getting some of the boys to talk was that they weren't boys that they were pregnant by. They were grown men. Mm -hmm. And I saw a lot of that where it really went that line between, you know, coercion. So they were coerced. Like I knew girls in high school when I was growing up who had boyfriends who were in their 30s. We're talking about 16-year-old girls who had boyfriends who were in their 30s. So it's so hard sometimes to pull it apart when you add in the kind of age. And one thing that I would say when I did learn what consent was, and, and, and like both of you have said, it was never, no one ever sat down. We didn't have that curriculum when I was growing up. There's something that we learn as writers around showing and not telling, right? So my mother told me something, the world told me another thing. But when I was able to know what consent looked like is when I was shown it by my first husband, the first man who really, really, really loved me deeply. I met him when I was 18 years old and I was married by 21 the first time. And through the demonstration of his love and his care for me, he valued every part of my body, right? Through that demonstration, I sort of learned like, oh, this is what it feels like to be with somebody who thinks that all of you matters, not just one piece of you matters, right? And that doesn't even have to translate into somebody who's going to become your husband. I don't mean to suggest that, but I do mean that there's something, there was something I learned about being valued. And what I've seen in the girls in my daughter's cohort is that the ones who were deeply valued by their community at home, their larger community, and, and were shown that there's been a way that they've interacted with boys as they're becoming sexual beings in the world and the way that they see how to value their own body and, and who and what is consent and very clearly no is no and all of those things and making decisions for themselves, by themselves and with information though and coming and asking for questions and some of the girls who have been pained by how their sexuality is unfolding were also girls I saw where they did not have those support systems. And so consent has got to be something I think that we teach not only in terms of sexual situations, but in terms of life. Like you were valued, you, as Butch, you were saying, Joan, you have a right to say no. You have a right to own your, you have sovereignty over your own body. All of those things and sovereignty over your mind, your opinions matter. There's a whole world of teaching that has to happen that exists even beyond the realm of sexuality. Absolutely. And, and what I really hear, the point that you're making, Joan, is the idea that there is a politics to the emotionality of consent. And if we do not engage those in intentional, deliberate, and specifically out loud articulated ways, then the notion of what we define as consent becomes confused for those men. I think Asha makes a really important point about sometimes it's really not boys. Sometimes it's definitely men. But if we stay with the idea of boys for a second, part of our work is the idea of creating language that better defines the range of behaviors we go through in terms of the consent. So this idea of a continuous consent, that you may have said yes to one part of this interaction, but that doesn't mean you said yes to every part of this interaction. And is that language being shared at a young enough age so um, girls and boys learn to respect that that consent requires a yes at every stage of the uh, interaction and that an unsureness for a boy should just represent no. L- like if we, if we 
looked at how we language this journey from one engagement to an actual interaction. I think that's part of how we reframe the conversation because I definitely think about the idea of a knowing consent versus a fearful consent. Does that make sense? So the idea that I know that I want this thing that is going to happen as opposed to I'm scared if I don't, ABC will happen, which is really, and I, and I really love, um, Joan, that you talked about the difference conflating consent with coercion. Because for me, that's how it breaks down in terms of simple language. The idea of, I know that I want this. I know that I want this with you, whoever you is, versus I'm scared if I don't have it, I'll lose A, B, C, D. Or if I'm scared if I don't do it, A, B, C will happen. Or I'm scared if I don't do it, he might do this to me. And I think, particularly when it comes to young women, too much consent falls within that politics of fear. And because we don't, we haven't explored how to language that series of emotions, you're left as a young person to just figure it out, just figure it out. And the figuring it out can create serious scarring on the other side, because that leads to an actual interaction. What I've noticed, and and I'll just use my daughter, you know, in, in this example, is that there was such a significant effort by me and by the women and men who surrounded my daughter in her growing up to value her. All this valuing happened about what she had to say, that her opinions were valid. All of this stuff happened before she was even of the age to be thinking about sex, right? So she was primed when we had conversations about sex, to already believe it was true because she had already been valued to be able to equivocate in an opinion, to not be sure, and that was okay. She wasn't going to lose love or be thought of as stupid. She wasn't going to be shamed. There were all of these things that happened before we ever got to a point that we needed to talk about sex. So by the time we talked to that to that about sex, when she was, you know, sort of entering the double digits, it was a much smoother conversation because it had already been proven to her that her opinion mattered, her thoughts mattered, and if she wasn't sure, she had the right to step away without being shamed, not loved, or lose anything. As someone that knows your daughter, it's been amazing to kind of watch that play itself out, and it's not something that you can, you're absolutely right with our kids, it's not something that you can say okay, I'm going to have this conversation the day I think they might be actually sexually active or getting ready to be sexually active. It's about shoring up the person as the young person as a whole. And so, you know, I had the two thoughts, points I wanted to make or thoughts I wanted to share is that as the mother of a 17-year-old son, like this consent issue, and as a feminist mother of a son, is terrifying for me. I have been embarrassing my son with this conversation about understanding what consent is. No means no. You have to get a definite yes. If there's any kind of doubt in your mind, you have to stop. You have to, you know, if she's not secure enough about it or or mature enough about it to for her yes to mean yes then you take that as like she's not ready and and it's a, from a very protective space right cuz one i don't want my son to hurt anybody two i don't want my son to find himself in a situation through misreading someone's actions and uh or alcohol and not being in control of his actions to be a rapist, to be quite frank. So from like the time, we've been having this conversation since he was 12, and I'm well aware of my fear in it. So it's with boys, it's, it's, 
you know, we often think about like consent and girls, but I do, I do want to say for the for those of us who are mothers of sons, this is also equally uh, terrifying. And the other thing I wanted to say, and here I go, just tell him my business. I was thinking recently about we tend to think of consent and we have a certain emotionality around it, as Esther would say. And it's an it's a emotionality of, like, keeping myself safe. Um, it's almost as if, like, we're, we're preparing ourselves for a particular kind of battle. And I, I was wondering how we language consent. And I was thinking the other day, just, you know, personal experience, telling too much of my business. I had a, 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 a lover who was really stopped, to, figured out a way to ask about consent pretty much like every step of the way. And it was so affirming and sexy. And I don't think that we ever think about the fact that like consent and asking for it can be a really erotic and sexy thing to, you know, have someone articulate over and over again that you want this. I'm going to let you all be creative and, you know, figure out how to it. <laughs> it is actually, it's a really, it's a very That was sexy, sexy just thing. to hear. I just want to say that was sexy just to hear that. <laughs> you know, and I, I, this recent experience, I was like, wow, there's a whole other way that we can approach this that we don't approach it. You know what I mean? How do we make consent part of our eroticism? And in addition, how do we protect something? Not in, as opposed to. Joan, but how this do we is language it. is that? Joan, this is it. It's like teaching. Yeah. I think that when we start teaching our kids early on, and I would say that what we have to do, as, as you rightfully said, is that we, we do a lot of this parenting, you know, out of the fear, out of terror. There's, and there's much to be afraid and much to be terrorized by in this world. But I think when we start early about the consent to joy, the consent to live the life you dream of, the consent to be as free as possible, that's part of what we're teaching our children early, again, before we get to sex so what they know they have to get to is feeling good is living their dreams of defining themselves for themselves and when you start that early by the time you get to the sexual conversation yes there are messages that we send about safety but those are not the only messages that we send right because then that puts it only in a pathological framework only in something exactly. negative and you have no idea of what does it mean to like just fully enjoy yourself your beautiful body your strong, gorgeous mind, all of those things. And I, and I think it's as important, and especially for black parents, because I think we've lived in so much fear, rightfully so, understandably so, for our children, that we haven't just sort of let a breath out and let them kind of be in the world and say, you know, I consent to your joy. I consent to you being whoever you want to be. One of the reasons we love Will and Jada Smith is that those kids are who they are. They claim themselves and define themselves. And part of getting to the consent is the right place in sexual is consenting to their freedom first. What I love about that, it makes me think the way we can reframe this conversation about consent is to think about the idea of finding pleasure in permission. Yes. Can, can I get a t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> With your permission I just want to spend a little time Tonight I wanna be a little me 
This is the first of the Consent Convo, a public, loving, unlearning and reframing conversation on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. You're listening to The Spin, a one-hour weekly all-women-of-colour media panel. I'm your host, Esther Armar. Our contributors this week are Asha Bendele and Joan Morgan. The Spin is brought to you by the African-American Public Radio Consortium. I'm live in Star FM studios in Accra, Ghana. We are on air across the United States in Arizona, Ohio, North Carolina, New Jersey, Mississippi, Texas, South Carolina, Georgia, and Iowa. We are on air in West Africa, in Ghana on Star FM 103.5, and in Lagos, Nigeria on WFM 91.7. And we are online via podcast on SoundCloud and now on iTunes. Part two of our launch, The Consent Convo, a public, loving, unlearning and reframing conversation on consent. From the personal to the political, the societal and the cultural, how do our notions of masculinity shape our public conversations on consent? Public conversations on consent are usually triggered by headlines of high profile celebrities being accused of sexual assault or rape. In the case of Nate Parker, his film, The Birth of a Nation, opens in movie theatres across the United States on Friday, October the 7th. The film and its writer, director and star have all made headlines for different reasons. The Birth of a Nation is a film about the Nat Turner Rebellion. Nat Turner was an enslaved African who led a rebellion of other enslaved men and women in Southampton, Virginia in 1831. It is a little told piece of history in American schools. When the film was screened at Sundance, Parker broke records, provoked standing ovations and attracted glowing reviews. Fox Searchlight paid a record-breaking $17.5 million for the film, the most a Hollywood studio had ever paid for a film at Sundance. Here's the trailer. You're a child of God. You got purpose. The law put it there. And nobody can take it away. These books are for white folks. They're full of things your kind wouldn't understand. You're a special boy, Nathaniel. Study hard here. Your slaves sure do know how to behave. Well, they God, Ben. One of them's a preacher. People might pay good money to have them calm down a bit, especially by one of their own. I lead you to Peter 218. Submit yourselves to your masters. Not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are harsh. I'm that. What you think you're doing, boy? I asked you a question. You're done preaching for a little while. You learned your lesson, boy? Oh, yes. I've learned. To watch a strong man broken down. It's a terrible thing. The Lord's spoken to me. Visions of what's to come. A rise of good against evil. What are we gonna do? We'll fight. But once it begins, our brothers and sisters will join. And we'll number in the hundreds, thousands even. And we'll rise up. I like the waves. We'll rise up. You fight. You fight. 
pray you sing a new song. Let the high plains of God be on the mouths of the saints and a two-edged sword in their hands to execute vengeance on the demonic nations. Sing to him a new song. Its creator, writer, and producer hit the headlines, as I said, for another reason. In 1999, when he was 19 and a student athlete at Penn State University, he and the co-writer of the film project, Gene Celestine, were accused of rape by another student, an 18-year-old freshman. She was white. The two young men said they had consensual sex at the same time with the young woman. She said she had drunk a lot of alcohol and was unable to consent. The case went to court. Parker was found not guilty. Celestine was convicted and served six months in jail. Celestine's conviction was overturned on appeal. The young woman was ready to testify again, but the retrial was abandoned after prosecutors argued it would be too challenging to bring all the witnesses back together again. So two young men walked away from a night where they say they were both engaged in sex at the same time with a young woman who says she was raped. The young woman committed suicide in 2012. She leaves behind a young son. The case continues to make headlines and Parker is now 36 years old. And his comments and interviews in connection with the case and the incident continued to provoke headlines. His early comments focused on how the case impacted him, his career and his future. He then followed up with a Facebook status on August 19th after learning the young woman had committed suicide. Several articles were written by black women writers and scholars and published on online magazines. Parker did a one-on-one interview with Ebony.com's Brittany Daniel. And that interview seemed to show a man moving in the direction of understanding harm was done, even if the law found him not guilty. In the one-on-one interview with Ebony.com, Parker said, and I quote, When I was first met with the news that this part of my past had come up, my knee-jerk reaction was selfish. I wasn't thinking about even the potential hurt of others. I was thinking about myself. This is happening for a very specific reason. To be honest, my privilege as a male. I never thought about it, unquote. Brittany Daniel asked Parker specifically about what he knew about consent then at 19. And he said, quote, to be honest, not very much. It wasn't a conversation people were having. When I think about 1999, I think about being a 19-year-old kid. And I think about my attitude and behavior just toward women, objectifying them. I never thought about consent as a definition, especially as I do now. I think the definitions of so many things have changed. Let me be the first to say I can't remember ever having a conversation about the definition of consent when I was a kid. I knew that no meant no, but that's it. But if she's down, if she's not saying no, if she's engaged, and I'm not talking about, just to be clear, any specific situation, I'm just talking in general, unquote. And that finally added, when you're 19, a threesome is normal. It's fun. When you're 19, getting a girl to say yes or being a dog or being a player, cheating, consent is all about for me back then. If you can get a girl to say yes, you win. After conceding his own selfishness and the harm caused to another person, he explained how women in his life helped him see his remarks were insensitive and ignorant. He said, quote, I called a couple of sisters that I know are in the space that talk about the feminist movement and toxic masculinity and just asked questions. What did I do wrong? Because I was thinking about myself. 
And what I realized is that I never took a moment to think about the woman. I didn't think about her then, and I didn't think about her when I was saying those statements, which was wrong and insensitive, unquote. So that was in August this year. Parker just did an interview for 60 Minutes with CNN's Anderson Cooper. He was asked if he had done anything wrong or he had anything to apologize for. And here's what he said. Listen. Do you feel guilty about anything that happened that night? I don't feel guilty. Do you feel you did something morally wrong? As a Christian man, just being in that situation, yeah, sure. I'm 36 years old right now, and, uh, and, and my faith is very important to me. You know, so looking back through that lens, um, I definitely feel like uh, it's not the lens that I had when I was 19 years old. Anderson asked Parker if he knew the young woman had committed suicide. I had no idea. I had absolutely no idea. I found out in the news. What did you think when you heard that? I was devastated. It was, it was shocking. Um, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. You haven't apologized to the, the woman or family. Do you feel, do you have anything to apologize for? I'll say this, you know, I do think it's tr tragic so much of what's happened and, and the fact that the family's had to endure with respect to this woman not being here. Um, but I, do, I also think that, you know, and I don't want to harp on this and I don't want to be disrespectful of them at all, you know, but you know, at some point I have to, to say it, you know, I, I was falsely accused. You know, I went to court and I sat in trial. You know, I was vindicated. I was vindicated. <clears throat> I was proven innocent. I was vindicated. And, and, and I feel terrible that this woman isn't here. You know, and I feel terrible that, you know, her family had to deal with that. Um, but as I sit here, an apology is a, no. Parker then spoke to Good Morning America's Robin Roberts. She also asked him about the case and he got testy and again explained he would not apologize. This is a very difficult but necessary conversation for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Your reaction to those allegations of, of years ago, that they, they just don't feel the, the empathy, that they don't feel that you have any remorse. You know who are we talking about? What we're talking about is what happened in 1999 Mm -hmm. The woman who is now deceased, who mm -hmm. took her own life, mm -hmm. and her family and others feel that, in seeing your remarks since it's resurfaced, mm -hmm. that do you have any any remorse? I apologize you know, at all for what it, happened. It, look, we we um, you know, I was on 60 Minutes last night. We right. talked about it. You know, um, three days out. Uh, I think the important thing is that you know this isn't about me. You know, the story of Nat Turner as an American, as American people, to know the story about a man who was erased from history. Um, that's you know, at some point. You know, I think that that's uh, where our focus should be. Well, there are a lot of people who's, who, who want to hear from you to be able to say, okay, are they going to, to mm -hmm. see it or not? Uh, right. I, it, it, it can't really be, I'm sorry, it can't mm -hmm. just be dismissed, mm -hmm. what happened. You have oh, to be addressed address and course, then to be able course, of course, absolutely. Uh, to be Absolutely. At some point, you know, um, I've talked about it and I keep talking about it. I keep talking about it. Uh, do you I apologize? I guess what's if maybe do you apologize? We talked, I talked about that last night. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a, not, not everybody saw last night. This yeah, is well, this you know, I'm not going to go right back. You know, okay. I'm not, not going to go through. I'm not going to, you know, and, I, and I've said it, and I said it last night. I, you know, I was falsely accused. You know, I was proven innocent, and I'm not going to apologize. The film opens on Friday, October 7th, and Parker's stance has prompted some to question whether or not they will see the film. Parker is part of a bigger issue, a much bigger issue, consent, and specifically the way masculinity, specifically toxic masculinity, shapes our understanding of consent. On college campuses all across America and across the world, here in Ghana and in Nigeria, there are 19-year-old students, 18-year-old freshmen, men and women, 
How have they been prepared regarding consent as they enter college campuses? Consent classes have started on campuses across the world. At Duke University, there are now classes on consent and masculinity initiated by the Women's Center. Here in Ghana, Let's Talk Consent is a workshop series for both high school students and university campuses created and led by broadcaster and writer Nana Akosia Hansen. Oxford University in the United Kingdom has made consent classes mandatory for the 2016 incoming students, and they are 90-minute student-directed workshops. At York University, also in the UK, students take on toxic masculinity and victim-blaming in their consent workshops. Those classes, though, are getting massive pushback. Warwick University in the UK tried consent classes. One student responded with a written blog saying such classes basically labelled him a rapist. And in the UK, newspapers are critiquing Oxford for its stance. Sexual violence on college campuses is a major issue. According to RAIN, the Rape, Abuse and Incest National Network, college-aged adults are at a high risk of sexual violence and only 20% report to the police. We know numbers only tell partial stories. And there's this, this potent mix of being away from home for the first time, freedom, alcohol. It creates for a messiness that needs to be owned and addressed. Let me be clear. I am not saying it excuses sexual assault or rape. It does not. I am saying we need better public conversations about consent and specifically about masculinity, toxic masculinity and how it influences what consent means, what permission means for men. It's bigger than Nate Parker. It is about all of us. So let's talk consent and masculinity. Joan Morgan, let me start with you. I cannot emphasize enough what a toxic combination the things that you just listed are. Being away from home for the first time with, you know, being at home, having limited freedom to having absolute freedom, the prevalence of alcohol, um, and, you know, we talk about alcohol. We don't talk about the other drugs. The other drugs are definitely there. And sex and very young people. So to me, like, this shouldn't be a class. This needs to be part of the absolute orientation process. And, again, I think that it has to make very clear, it's an irony to me that this is happening at Duke, where, you know, Duke is Duke's policies on sexual assault and its students have not historically been that great. I think that it can't happen as a class. It can't happen as something that is, um, it, ha- it has to be no less than mandatory, and the intervention has to happen right at the very beginning. In the same way that you know that there's a code of conduct in terms of cheating, plagiarism, violence, not sexual violence, but any other kind of violence, and students know exactly what that is, you have to set what that is for your campus, and quite frankly, you have to stick to it. And it shouldn't matter if it's a student athlete, it shouldn't matter if it's the son of someone who who has donated mightily to uh, at financially to the campus, those things, there has to be a, a standard of conduct. But, you know, we keep talking about kids, and I understand this, like, in terms of teenage boys, really, because that's what college freshmen are, but there are so many grown men who still don't understand consent. I mean, I watched... All of the Mike Tyson rape trial, I was there. I covered it from the time that they called the very first witness to the conviction. And I will say over and over again, yes, 
I fully believe that Mike Tyson raped his victim. I also believe in watching his conviction that he still does not understand that he did that. And if he doesn't understand that he did that, what is the likelihood that he'll do it again? Asha Bendele, your thoughts? I so appreciate that, Joe, and I agree that it should be mandatory. I also appreciate your coverage of the Mike Tyson trial because it's certainly been apparent to me that um, there is a disconnect between what people do and what they think they do. I remember reading something back in the 90s. It was a book on we were then calling it date rape, right, where 70% of the women who responded felt that they had been date raped. And but only 30 percent of the men felt that they had committed date rape. And so there is a disconnect when it comes to that. And once again, I'll go back to there's a lot of weight that we put on those on the colleges when they first come in. And that should be there and it should be mandatory. But but the education that we have and how we raise our boys has to begin before. You know, I see boys before they get to college. Boys have touched my daughter in the street who didn't even know her, just reached out. I've Grown men have done it and boys have done it. And so there's such a huge culture shift that has to happen with the idea. Men have to get out of the idea that that women do not have sovereignty over their bodies. People need to understand that people have sovereignty over their own bodies. And until we really fully disrupt that notion, it's going to be very hard to drum this out of anybody. And with Nate Parker, you know, specifically, what a terrible PR person he has. I don't know why he keeps going off script all Donald Trump-like. I, you know, he had really done a great job with Brittany Danielle in Ebony, and he should have left it there because we, we don't know what happened that night, right? We don't know. We weren't there. She says one thing he says another somebody was had their conviction tossed somebody was acquitted so you know legally there was nobody responsible but here's what we do know there's a girl who's dead there's a girl who committed suicide and i think for that alone you tread lightly on this woman whose life is gone who locates it in whatever happened that night and i don't know if that's right or wrong but i think that there's a way that you come across when you're talking about a young woman who's committed suicide and her family sitting here grieving in the mix and it's just horrifying to me to think of the arrogance not to realize that alone which makes me wonder about him in general i have to say that this education process it cannot fall solely on women. It cannot fall solely right. on feminists. Men, men who actually know better, men need to be trained to know better. Men need to counsel men about consent and the nitty-gritty of navigating their masculinity, toxic and otherwise, around this issue of consent. Like, it is critical that they step up and start to lead this charge. It is absolutely critical. It's so powerful what you said, because in researching how the consent classes are being initiated, even on college campuses, they've all been initiated by women. And the point about how you learn about consent becomes crucial, because I think insofar as we recognize part of changing how we teach girls about consent is recognizing that there is a pleasure in permission. It requires an unlearning in a masculinity that teaches there is a pleasure in aggression, taking and engaging the no and defeating the no. There is a way in which what it is to be a man and the notion of consent are actually antithetical. That's what toxic masculinity does. It makes the idea of permission, agreement, sanction, allowing all of those words, it makes them quote unquote unmanly. And so there's a way in which the relationship between a yes 
that a woman says yes and that her no must be respected, that that is not a rejection of your masculinity and it cannot be seen that way. And it's partially why I'm thinking about two things. These grown men who are dating 16-year-olds, there's this idea of or, or about the notion of being that young and simply not knowing. So how you negotiate the agency of your body, you just don't necessarily have that knowledge yet. It takes some time. And so how men school men, part of that requires definitely a schooling from women in order for them to effectively school other men. Part of the reason I think that is necessary is your point, Joan, that you understand that Mike Tyson does not believe that what he did was rape. I absolutely understand that. And I've seen that not just in, in Tyson, but in other cases where I get that even if the person has been convicted or acquitted from their point of view, they do not understand that what they did was not consent. And part of how we reframe the consent conversation is to unpack and unlearn these elements of toxic masculinity that make taking and aggression and no sexy. It's the antithesis of what we're arguing for and finding a pleasure in permission. And so it's the idea that real men don't ask. Real men don't wait. Real men don't yield. All of those kinds of phrases that are actually toxic, dangerous, and create a rapist knowingly and unknowingly. And so sometimes men don't know. Sometimes they choose to know. And part of the elements of masculinity are notions of denial and deflection. So the unwillingness to engage other men in order that this conversation can be turned around and that this is not solely the work of women, nor has it ever been, nor has it ever been. And it has been too easy to stay silent in your unsureness, be cautious about a masculinity that always seeks reward, right, for any action. And if there is not a certain reward, then you're not going to step into that particular fire. And consent, when it comes to masculinity and toxic masculinity, is a fire because our public conversations so often are triggered around issues of sexual assault and rape, which means that it must be triggering for survivors of sexual assault and rape. And we see the public exchanges, whether they're on social media, whether they're on um, TV, where they get heightened and heated and they become cycles of denial and deflection and defense. And I feel there's almost something, the idea of it's manly to kind of double down. No, I won't apologize. No, I won't embrace active regret. And I think that's part of it is unpacking how toxic masculinity is like blunt force trauma to a spectrum of emotionality, to the idea of permission. And that mm -hmm. If we don't, if we're not willing to unlearn and unpack that. And I also mean not doing what I call toxic masculinity by platform and PSA. So we make a statement, put it on a T-shirt or say it in a, in a mic or on a video. And that becomes the unlearning that the unpacking is complicated and messy and requires an active, consistent practice and engagement that I don't think we've created the language for yet. But it's certainly something and certainly part of my emotional justice work that I'm definitely calling for. Last thoughts to you both as we close. You know, Esther, I think that the point that you make right, right there is so critical. But I also think it's both. I think we live in a visual culture. I think that we live in a culture where particularly the younger people are, the more that they're used to seeing uh, messages in very short formats. And so, you know, whereas there's been so much emphasis on did Parker apologize? Nate Parker apologized. Did he not apologize? 
that's actually less important to me. She's not here <laughs> um, anymore to hear it. I don't know um, how it would even be received by her family, given uh, the things that they have said about how they feel about him. But I do know that we have had successful national campaigns in this country that actually change behavior, and they have to do with education. They have to do with how we feed that message through popular culture, and they also had to do with advocacy. Uh, there was a time in this country where using condoms was solely associated with, like, preventing pregnancy. And, you know, you'd be hard-pressed to actually find a younger person now who doesn't at least know all of the reasons that they should use a condom to protect themselves from sexually transmitted diseases. And that was not always the case. That was not the case when I was in college at all. And so I would really like to see some of our very, very talented directors take on this issue and not just a PSA saying, you know, no means no, but what does, what does consent, sexy consent look like? What does a situation where someone is actually giving consent look like? Like, how do we use our creativity? How do we use our genius? How do we use our brilliance? Certainly, if you turn on any cable TV show, our tolerance for sexual content is high. How do we use this particular moment and actually demonstrate what it looks like, not what should be said or what you shouldn't do or shame on you, but what does consent between two healthy, loving people look like? To both of your points, right, it is demonstration over proclamation, or maybe it's an and-both situation. But, you know, I want to sort of uh, maybe as we come to a close express some hope. I have a lot of belief that the generation we are seeing now is pushing the envelope ever further you know, bending that moral arc of the universe ever greater toward justice. And, you know, and I'll continue to say, you know, that this is what they're doing. They're not waiting until the moment of, of sexual impact, uh, you know, for somebody to start talking about consent, right? They're talking about how are we as human beings in the world, right? And existing even along a, spe a gender spectrum and the definitions of, of masculinity and femininity are, are shifting and growing with our humanity as they should be. And so I think that that's really, really important that we do not wait until people are, are sexually active to begin talking about some of these issues. What I saw in Nate Parker was probably the natural extension of, an, of a certain kind of male privilege that, that has always existed, even within the oppression that black men live in. There's always still been that male privilege, right? So while I don't know what happened there, the extraordinary arrogance I've seen him put forward, less so with a man, by the way, Anderson Cooper, on 60 Minutes, and far more so with a black woman. You know, it was very... And so like to, to, then to think that he might do something that was physically harmful is not, is not shocking to me. The arrogance is there. The assumption I can do what I want was already there. We're teaching boys. We're rewarding boys for so much of this behavior. How do we flip that and begin to reward a different kind of behavior? And as Joan says, put that before us as this is what it means to be a man and this is what it means to be a man and this and give people, you know, a much broader and holistic idea of what manhood is. Well, consent in the end is about making different choices. Everybody got choices. This will be an in your place so you stand for your own. Say me can I won't feel ya but more than can also we need young so I bo my dear can say yes.
Well, that's your hour. Thank you to Joe Morgan and Asha Bandeli. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. I want to hear myself. Thank you to the Spin Production team, sound editor David McKeever, distributor Loretta Rucker, and the AAPRC. This is The Consent Convo, the first in a global, public, loving, unlearning, and reframing conversation on consent in partnership with Ebony.com. Listen to The Spin on iTunes and check out Ebony.com. The Spin, your hour of talk, where smart is also and always global and sexy. I'm your host, Esther Armour. Invest your money properly, people owe me your policy. Intellectual property, stealing, stolen commodities, souls controlling robbery, soul lack of commodity, clones, copycats bother me, mine on black hair, follow me. Honestly, 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 all these jokers economy. Puppets with no autonomy. Yup, it's food you can I see you looking with your better take it easy. Tell your goons that they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. Too much ex mommy, take it easy. You're good with the sex, you be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy, you better take it easy. You moving bricks, but you better take it easy. Here's a tip. You too flash. I don't tip twice, but your best friend he DT. And that dog sniff in the bag ain't last And I ain't rhyme in a minute, but y'all ain't catch up. And I ain't blood on your shirt, man. That's ketchup. Picture cleft, get the writer to give him help. I'd rather kill myself, become a ghost, and write for myself. Cause I'm a top celebrity, top celebrity, top celebrity MC. I flow for the thugs, gypsies, and hippies. Yeah, the ghetto might scroll with a nat turn of flow. Malcolm X come out, hit the Ku Club show. I see you looking, but you better than getting in. Tell you Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex. You be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. You know originals get plagiarized, majors, minors, my supervisors, leaders, climbers get scrutinized, placators, blinded, stupid guys, wicked people choose homicide, drugs of society, heathen, the neck is bogus, misleading, the nigger, negro, no reader, the antelitos, Tony Burden, Chico, Chica's completing them, addiction, fiction, bleeding, and capitalism, beating them, misunderstanding, cheating them, the ignorance, defeating them, loyalty is leaving them, got royalty, believing them, eyes open, deceiving them, reconciling, receiving them, reckless driving, we leaving them, Matthew, and you and Peter, we about to reconcile, reckon, reckon, reckon. We about to reconcile, bitch. We about to reconcile. We have to reconcile. Reconcile it come again. Which I thought I wasn't coming. Yeah, right. Been in LA, <laughs> few flicks, few millions. Back with the Fuji food, fighting for a few billions. Dub play villain, some boy chilling. Any DVD boy, let cash for me, villain. Angela, Simone, Michelle, you know them willing. Can't fight the feeling when I pull in the SLR. Every girl love the ghetto superstar. Real hip hop like pinstripe leads. And I got love for my crew, like big half of C's. Pulling squeeze on these MCs. Man, I don't really want to do it. Take it easy. I see you looking, but you better take, take it easy. So you goose they better take it easy. Here comes the rocket launcher. Take it easy. Take it easy. You better take it easy. Too much ex mommy. Take it easy. Good with the sex. You be like, take it easy. Mommy, take it easy. Take it easy. You better This program has been brought to you by the African American Public Radio Consortium. NPR Distribution, and the Public Radio Satellite System.